welcome. This is a message from Victory Church. We trust you'll be inspired and encouraged by today's message. Alright, here we go. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, that also was vanity. Now, gentlemen, some of you may want to turn around. Please feel free to do so while I read the text. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart was still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold of folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I, may, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and of provinces, I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. But whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my foil, or my toil, foil. And that was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered that my hands had done and the toil I had uh, expected in doing and behold all was vanity, a striving after wind and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. And so I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what was already been done. And then I saw that there was more to gain in wisdom than in folly as there is more to gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Father, grant us wisdom, insight, honesty, transparency as we sit around the text. What a remarkable group of men. What remarkable stories are present here. I'm the privileged one with the microphone, but each man here is the privileged one with the story. And I ask, Lord, that somehow as we open up the Scriptures for just a few moments, that you would inspire, empower, that you would enlarge and increase every one of us. Let humility reign supreme. Let every one of us, myself included, stand very humbly before the throne of grace. Put our hands up and say, Lord, we are here. Would you speak to us? Thank you for the story that we've had. Thank you for the future that lies before us. And in all of these, we acknowledge our deep and profound need of you. In Jesus' name, amen. I love preaching from the Scriptures, but what I love is finding the story behind the story. So often we theologians, thinkers and preachers dive straight in to open up the text as if there isn't a story behind the story. This passage from Ecclesiastes, 12 remarkable chapters, written by Solomon, most theologians agree, um, we quickly jump to trying to understand why a man who had everything speaks about life as vanity. 
And so recently I was asked to teach in a church. They were in the middle of the series around Ecclesiastes. And they said, would you mind jumping in and teaching this particular text? Well, to my embarrassment, I realized I didn't actually even know the story behind the story. And so what I had to do was to go not just to open up the scripture in what was written in the original Hebrew, but actually find out why was Solomon writing this, who was he writing this to, and why was he so melancholic about his story? Well, this was the amazing thing. Theologians said, well, it could be the musings of a man who's actually talking to himself, almost like the black dog, white dog that rages inside of us. Others say, well, no, no, it's not a, that conversation. It's a conversation between two men. But I thought, no, I'm sure the text will actually tell me. So I went back to the scriptures and it opens up with the words of the preacher. The Hebrew word is keholeth. It's, it's the accumulator of sayings. It's like a proverb gatherer. For each one of my kids, I've written a journal. When my eldest daughter got married seven years ago, on her wedding day, I gave her a journal of the writings and musings of a father, of her story, of her past, and the things that I think are catalytic for her future. My second daughter gets married in a few weeks' time, and I have a journal which I will give her. Her story, her past, and the projection of her future. My 14-year-old son, I've started writing his as well. This was a father writing or accumulating the sayings then at the end of the book, and I just want to frame it for you because I think it'll make much more sense as we scratch around in the text. He lands it, the author does, by saying this, Rejoice, young man, in your youth. Let your heart cheer you. And he's just spoken about vanities. Nothing's worth anything. Everything's a mess. And he says, now rejoice, young man. It's a bit crazy to me. He says, in your youth and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart, the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remember also your creator. And then right at the end of the book, my son, beware of anything beyond these. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Now, let me frame it for you quickly. We'll dive in. We've just got a few moments. Here's my thesis. Solomon is sitting with his boy. It's the end of his life. He's brought out the photo albums. He's brought out the videos. And he is sitting. Now, remember, he had 700 wives. He had 300 concubines. That gentleman sounds exhausting. <laughs> Come on, you can't even handle one wife. Now, let's be honest. We're talking about a 1,000 women with all the slaves that he had, he is sitting with his boy. He's sitting at the end of his life, is my, is my reading of the text. And he's opening up the photo album and he starts this way. He says, I, the Keholeth, the gatherer of sayings, the son of David. It's interesting. He doesn't say, I, Solomon, the great king, the richest man who's ever lived, the man for whom kings and provinces come and lay down their wealth, the wisest man who ever lived. He comes and he positions himself as the son of David. Now that caught my interest immediately. And my talk, gentlemen, this morning is quite simple. I want to take us back for a moment. Whose son are you? I was asked to speak at my son's graduation, junior high. And uh, I arrived at the graduation ceremony. Americans are big on pomp and circumstance. And uh, I pulled out a book, it's a Christian school, but I pulled out a book, put it on the, on the podium where I was speaking, and I said, ladies and gentlemen, this book is the second most important book on my bookshelf. And I think everyone kind of piqued a little interest. This is a preacher man, and I've got hundreds of books. 
But why would he say this is the second one? Obviously, the Bible is the first one. But the book's title is From Moscow to the Cape. It's the story of the two Venans who arrived in Africa at the end of the Napoleonic Wars. Many preachers have great stories of forebears who were missionaries in darkest Africa or some equally adventurous, brave journey. Mine is the story of two mercenaries. Because our name, our tribe, the Waldeck tribe in Germany, were those whom Napoleon used to fight in Russia. And these two cousins got beaten up, got shot up, and decided to heal in Africa, never expecting to stay, but ended up staying. I have a story to tell, as do you. And I'm not sure we can ever go forward, gentlemen, unless we've stepped back to say, I am, as Solomon said, my boy, I am the son of David. That's who I am. Now, if time allowed, and forgive me for, for not going there, I then, out of interest, went back to David's final words to his son. And I'm sure Solomon takes the photo album back and he says, now, this is your grandpa. Th this is your grandpa, David. My father was an alcoholic. I don't say that to in any way be disparaging towards him. But there were key moments in my life that affected me dramatically because I am the son of Pat. His father died when he was 12. He was a minor. And my dad said he died in his arms. My grandpa did my namesake. Coughing up his lungs. Black lung disease. The mine doctor said he died of a heart attack. So that the mine was not guilty or responsible for my grandma with eight kids. And so my father at the age of 14 was a postman. By day and by night he studied. I'm the son of Pat. Life was hard on my dad. But I never understood that as a kid. You see, gentlemen, there is something that needs to be settled. It's, it's, it's Solomon's lament at the end of his life. He actually keeps um, seeding this message by saying how hard it is to take over from a king. His father was the greatest king Israel ever knew by geography, by politics, by military influence. He cast a massive shadow over Israel and Solomon had to step out of that, the son of his father's mistress. And he had to step into a role to be the son of David. And I read these 12 chapters of Solomon at the end of his life trying to come to terms with the fact that he was the son of a king and how jolly hard that was. Yeah. And I want to say to you, gentlemen, mano a mano, I want to say to you, man to man, the only way you and I can ever go forward is to subtly sit and acknowledge the fact that I am Chris, the son of Pat, whose son are you? Because David then goes on, if you read it in 1 Kings, you will see he calls Solomon in and he gives him two primary mandates. He says two things to him. He says to him, my boy, I want you to show yourself a man and keep all the commandments and the laws that God has given to you. It's a very interesting thing that Solomon lived all the years as if he tried to prove that he was better than his pops. So in the writing, he says, my boy, you see all the kings who came and brought me silver and gold. Do you see all the provinces who came and acknowledged the wondrous buildings I built? Do you see all the, he never talks about the temple of God that he built, but he says, look, 
Look at the mansions I've built. Look at the, 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 the palaces I've built. Look at the forests. I've been to Israel. There's not a lot of forests. He brought trees in. He built lakes. He built vineyards. He brought slaves in because somehow inside of him, he could never settle the fact that he was the son of David. So he tried to labor himself to prove that he was as good as his pops. And he sits with his boy at the end of the day and somehow, and I don't want to read into the text what's not there, but it's almost like for me when he says vanity of vanities, it's like him saying, my boy, I tried to compete with my dad and prove him that I could be as good a king as he was. But it's all vanity. What a waste of time. I was up early this morning. At 3.43 I woke up because I looked at my watch and I just felt such a pressing urgency to pray for you men. Because I had to. 1986, I went on an anti-sanctions campaign to America. I was a pastor at the time, a young guy. They took six pastors, six businessmen and we flew to Washington. We met with politicians, we went on the air, negotiated against sanctions that the world put against South Africa, and obviously, rightfully so. But when you're in it at the time, and bear in mind, Africa has a very poor history of healing herself. But I was flying back by myself, the tour had kind of split out, and I was flying back across the Atlantic, and God said to me, as clearly as I can hear the voice of God internally, He said, why are you embarrassed? to be an Afrikaner. Why are you embarrassed to have Pat as your dad? And you know when God comes with a rhetorical question like that, the, the, the immediate instant response is, no, I'm not. Of course I'm not. And there was just enough time where God had me cornered. I had nowhere to go. I couldn't make a noise. It wasn't like the, the aircraft today where you got lots of movie channels. I was stuck in a seat in the air at whatever, 30,000 feet or whatever. I wasn't going anywhere. And God slowly walked me through, gentlemen, the realities that I was hiding from the fact that I was Chris, the son of Pat. I changed my accent because I didn't want to sound Afrikaans. I changed my name from Christian, which is way too Afrikaans, to Chris. Because I didn't want to sound like the son of Pat. And I knew it was a defining moment, gentlemen. My future was crafted on that airplane that night. What, the freedom with which I would catapult forward was defined by the way in which I handled that moment. And my father was still an alcoholic, and my father still didn't understand what I was doing. But I had to settle something that day. David said to Solomon, show yourself a man. And I wonder if you didn't say, all right, I'll show you. I'll take 700 wives. I'll take 300 concubines. I'll show you what a man's like, pops. You stole my mother from her husband. I'll show you what a man's like. You take one woman, I'll take 700. These are weighty, sober moments. And I, and I don't want to be in your face, but I want you to acknowledge that these are weighty moments. I wept before God on that airplane that night. When I landed in Johannesburg, as it was in those days, Jan Smuts International, we still had to get off the plane and walk across the tarmac. It was before all those fancy things. And I wanted to kiss the tarmac because God healed my heart that day. In His kindness. A few months later, I got off the podium speaking before 4,000 leaders in a city called Bloemfontein. My mother and father were there. And they walked up to me. My father's a construction worker. He's still 80 years old. He's still fixing and building and roofing. And 
He walked up to me. They both did, and they put their arms around me, tears streaming down the face, and they said, Chris, we never knew. We never knew. But my heart had to be healed before their recognition came. Gentlemen, there isn't a way forward. I don't know if we know, even know how to love our wives until our hearts are healed. Show yourself a man, he said. Well, of course, there's the whole text of what that means. But it comes out of the freedom that we find when we settle the fact that I am the son of. Show yourself a man means that we are the dispensers of grace. Our wives aren't there to serve us. It is we who are there to serve them. It is we who are to care for them. The Bible does say that they are the weaker gender. Now, what does that mean, Chris? It doesn't mean that they are weaker emotionally or somehow inept. It's not a gender-crushing moment. It just says that they gestate, they lactate, and menstruate. They have monthly cycles. Do you want that? Do you want that? Do you want to have to go through what they do? Do you want to have to nurse in public? Do you want to have to carry a child? Do you want to feel the vulnerability? Forgive me for being crass. Opening your legs, let men stick their hands in to pull a baby. Do you want that? The Bible says in those moments, they are the weak agenda. You show yourself a man by acknowledging the vulnerable moments in a woman's life. And it's not the moment we cast silly little comments like, oh dear, red letter day. Oh dear, it's that day of the month. It's that moment that she actually wants our deepest love and affection. I don't want to be crass, and I think there are some women around. But gentlemen, can you imagine walking around bleeding? No man puts up his hand for that. If you don't put your hand up for that, then zip your lip about it. This is a vulnerable 12-chapter book about a man who is wrestling the fact that he is the son of David. Are you with me? More I can say about that time doesn't allow me to. The flip side of it is he now sits with his boy. He's got the photo albums out. He's got the video going. He now says to his boy, now I want you to see what my life has been like. This is a remarkable chapter because he is taking his boy. You see the forests? Do you see everything I've labored for? Do you see all of that? And the picture in my mind, gentlemen, sorry, I preach with pictures. I see a young man sitting there with tears streaming down his face saying, but dad, you were never there for me. You weren't there for me. 700 wives, 300 concubines. Do you know how many kids he had? Because I don't right now. And I can only imagine this boy sitting there saying, but dad, you weren't there for me. You were too busy on the construction site. You were too busy digging, digging lakes. You were too busy bringing the forest in and meeting all these glamorous celebrities who came to town. And so it's interesting to me that Solomon never addresses his boy like David did. David said to him, keep the law of God. And we know when someone says that to us, it produces robots or rebels. And Solomon said his heart, it's all very good for you to say, buddy, I know who my mother is. I'm out of here. And he did exactly everything his dad told him not to. And so Solomon sits with his boy and he doesn't say keep the law. He says, my boy, I want you to remember one thing. All of this ultimately is for that day when you will meet your maker. That great audience of one. I'm not going to tell you. Anything I say to you, you're going to say, yes, yeah, sure, pops. 
Yeah, sure. If I try and tell you how to treat your wife, you're going to say, yeah, sure, Dad. If I try and tell you how to handle your money, you'll say, yeah, 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 here we go, here we go. But with incredible, he says, young man, enjoy this life, but just remember, there is the great audience of one, where one day we will stand face to face, and there'll be no excuses, no arguments, no moral, moralistic relativism, it will just be me and him. Remember that, young man, there will be that judgment. You see, gentlemen, in chapter 3, Solomon makes an extraordinary comment. He says, they have eternity in their hearts. We've been designed for eternity. This is just a short little window of our stories. This is the shortest moment of our lives. You know what changed the way I husbanded? Now, remember my story a little bit incidentally. My dad is wonderfully saved. He's been off alcohol. God healed him. Touched him. He had um, his third pancreas attack, uh, oh gosh, now probably 23 years ago. And he was on his face two o'clock in the morning after another drinking binge. And he cried out to God. He said, God, if you will heal me, I will serve you. And God healed him that night. I've seen the medical documentation. I've seen the x-rays of his liver before and afterwards. His blood work before and afterwards. It is an absolute miracle. And he never touched drink after that. He went to my brother who's five years younger than him. My brother planted a church a few years ago and my dad went and he said, I was never there for Chris, but I'm going to be there for you. And when you arrive at their church plant, my dad's at the door because he's not going to let you leave. <laughs> so I just want to say that because I'm a very proud son of Pat today. But Solomon drives into his heart the wonderful sense of we have eternity in our hearts. I know we live as if now is forever. But I look into the mirror, when I look in the mirror and the gray hair and the wrinkles and the belly, and no matter how hard I do my sit-ups, they just are not going. I'm reminded of my raw, rank humanity. A father to his son, David to Solomon. A father to his son, Solomon to his boy. And he says, my boy, I want you to remember there is eternity in your heart. I want to say to you, gentlemen, as abstract and as weird as that sometimes sounds or feels, there is eternity before us. And it is that great and glorious moment where we stand before our heavenly father. I am looking forward to that. When I was a broken young man, who came to Christ. I didn't know how broken I was, but when I came to Christ, you know the picture that sealed it for me, and I'm almost done. I had this picture in my mind one night. I can't remember if, I was, if, I was, if it was a dream or just an image, but it was of me dying and getting into an elevator. And I went up the elevator. When it opened up, I knew there was, this was an extraordinary room. And I always feared that moment because I never knew what God's reaction was going to be to me. I never doubted God's existence. I just didn't know how he would react to me. And as the elevator door opened in this incredible light, there were angels on every side. But it was so bright, it's hard to describe or to define them. And right at the end of the passageway was a throne, this glorious throne. And honestly, it was almost as if I didn't want to lift my eyes because I wasn't quite sure what it would look like. And then there was the... The sound of a chair being pushed back. And God stood up. And I heard my name being called. 
And I looked up and he got up off the throne and he put his arms out and he called me by name. And I started running. And he put his arms around me and he picked me up and he said, welcome home. Eternity in our hearts. Time has run out on me, but I want to close with this. Please settle in your heart that you are the son of. Today, please. I have a 14-year-old son. I had to sit down at the table the other day, look him in the eyes, and I had to say, my boy, I'm so sorry. I said, I haven't transitioned. I've treated you like a little boy. Sons, you instruct. Adults, adolescent, you collaborate. And I said, I was still instructing you all the time. I said, I'm so, so sorry. He looked at me. His chest came out a little bit. He's a soccer player. He's a big boy. His eyes filled up just so slightly. And he looked deeply into my eyes. And he said, okay, Dad. I don't know how proud he is that he's the son of Chris. And I don't know how much healing God has to do in his heart. But I trust as God healed me, the son of Pat, that my boy will also be healed, the son of Chris. And secondly, that if we don't get it, we ask God for an understanding of what it means to have eternity in our hearts. This is a light and momentary transition. But one day we will stand before him. And one day we will know. And that, dear friends, is the greatest gift we can give our kids. Solomon doesn't give his boy a long list. Do this, don't do this. These are good morals. Those are bad. This is how you should do business. He doesn't. He says, my boy, you've got eternity in your heart. Live that way. Because one day you will see him. And then you will know. This is the end of the message. Thank you for taking the time to listen. God bless.